Holly mentioned to you earlier, um, we've been covering a series with our youth this term um, in the Psalms, which we have entitled A Soundtrack to Life. Um, I may or may not have nicked that title from Paul. Um, if I have, then sorry, mate. But <laughs> it's recyclable, at least. Um, and inevitably, as part of our discussions in our group, we've been discussing the importance of music and the role that music plays in our lives. The Psalms, as we know, are a collection of music and poetry. And just as in popular culture today, we use the medium of song to express how we feel. The Psalms, to some extent, are no different. I'm not necessarily saying that the Psalms exclusively function as spiritual therapy. That's not the case. Um, And we know that the Psalms broadly cover quite a few different functions and quite a few different genres in the Bible. Um, Those of you old enough to remember hymn books, I don't want to insult anyone when I say that. I know there's a lot of churches still using hymn books. Um, You could call the Psalms the hymn book of the the early church and, and of the Jews at the time that it was written. And we know that some of the psalms were designed to be sung in certain situations, um, some corporately or as a congregation, as a, a little bit like we've been doing today. Some were perhaps meant to be more reflective and sung privately. And some were meant to be sung, as we know, at certain festivals and feasts and, and religious occasions throughout the Jewish calendar. But to me, when I was putting the series together and we were thinking about how we were going to go about it, what really stood out to me about this collection of songs was that time after time they form a deeply personal and a deeply emotional outpouring from the person writing it. And it forms a reflection of what they're feeling as it's laid out in front of God. And as you look through more and more Psalms, you soon discover that they tackle pretty much the whole spectrum of emotions that we go through as human beings. Just like with any great compilation album or greatest hits album, you know, you've got a collection of songs which cover a massive range of genres. Sometimes you'll have like a love song, sometimes a song of confession, sometimes a more upbeat, angry song perhaps, um, and sometimes you've even got songs which sound a little bit like just an outright rant at God, believe it or not. One of the Psalms we looked at was Psalm 22, where literally David at one point starts almost whinging at God saying, you know, look at all my ancestors, you helped all them out. But you're not going to help me out. Where are you? It's not necessarily something I'd recommend, but it's, it's there in black and white, isn't it? And as we've tried to structure our study by looking at a psalm which covers a different emotion each week, and for me at least, I've, I've found so much application for us as, as 21st century human beings. Many, many things have changed since the book of Psalms as a collective were first written down. You name it, technology, politics, war, language, science. Millennia have passed since these songs were first written down. Empires have come and gone since these songs were written, as Paul was was speaking to us a little bit about last week. But the vital thing that has not changed and will not change this side of glory is the human condition. How we think, how we feel, and how we interact with one another. And all these years later, we're still doing the same thing, aren't we? We're using music to evoke different emotions within us. Some of you might have heard of Martin Luther, a great 16th century theologian. He's quoted as saying, My heart, which is so full to overflowing, has so often been solaced and refreshed by music when sick and weary. Um, And I found another good one from Billy Joel, believe it or not. He said, music in itself is healing. It is an explosive expression of humanity. 
I'm a bit of a, a bit of a fan of Eric Clapton, um, and I was watching an interview with him recently. And I've, you never, I don't know if you've ever heard Eric Clapton speak, um, but he's quite a slight sort of guy. He's quite sort of, he's not really forthcoming. And he was talking a little bit about how, as a child, he felt quite weedy and insignificant, and he struggled to find a way to express himself. And the only way he could do that was literally through a plank of wood with six strings on it. And looking at the Psalms, God has clearly given us music to use as a form of expression. So, for example, as part of our discussion in the, in the youth on a Friday night, we, we chatted a little bit about what songs do we listen to to vent our anger? Um, or possibly what kind of music makes us angry. Um, I think Bieber featured quite heavily in that discussion, if I remember right. Um, but the example I gave um, was a band that I used to be into uh, called Linkin Park. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Um, I thought I was being quite hip and cool by referencing them. These lot all just looked at me with blank faces, so I've officially checked into middle age, I think. Um, but yeah, band I used to listen to back in the day, heavy guitars, very dodgy rap music, and really dark, depressing, angry lyrics. Um, and tragically, to, to the lead singer, a guy called Chester Bennington, they, they were more than just lyrics as he tragically took his own life a few years ago. And looking at some of the lyrics that he wrote, it's, it's really not all that hard to see why. And for me, as an angsty teenager, this was the band through which I could express all my frustrations and all the perceived injustices against me in my life, or at least as much injustice as a middle-class white kid from the Midlands could muster, but, you know, I did my best. Um, and this theme has cropped up time and time again as we've been studying the unflinching honesty of the authors as they express themselves to God through song. And it never ceases to amaze me, particularly in the case of David, who was king of Israel, just how much he lets us into his most private thoughts and emotions. And compare that, if you will, to say what's going on in the news at the moment. Some of us have no doubt switched on our televisions and seen this awful business regarding Jeffrey Epstein and Prince Andrew and all the horrible revelations that have come off the back of that. And everyone's been asking, how much did he know? How much was he party to it? How much was he involved? And it kind of dawned on me as I was watching it that, you know, whether he's guilty or innocent, we're really probably never going to get to know the full extent of the, the truth of the matter, are we? And it's kind of hardly surprising because he's a, he's a prince, isn't he? You know, he's not going to air his dirty laundry in front of us. And you can also look back in history and look at accounts of princes, kings, and dictators, and you can see something similar, can't you? So there's a phrase that historians sometimes like to use. Stay with me with this, please. Try not to fall asleep. They're called historiography. Um, believe it or not, I've got a history degree, and this is the first time in nine years that I've actually used it for anything. So <laughs> nine grand well spent. <laughs> but basically, a very crude way of describing historiography is let's dissect and debate about different sources of historical record because basically we can't be totally sure that anything that got written down about anyone in history is completely the truth. You know, kings and dictators in years gone by have had a great habit of twisting and manipulating what's been written about them. You know, look at everything that came out after the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 90s and all the stuff that was covered up and kept secret. So if I was to put on my historiography specs and have a look at Psalm 139, I'd have to conclude, at least at the very least, it doesn't look like propaganda because I can't see anything in it that paints David in a particularly good light. He's shown to be angry in verse 19 to 22. He's shown to be anxious in verse 23. And he's shown to be unsure of himself in verse 24. 
You know, these aren't kingly qualities that David would want his subjects to know about, are they? Can you imagine Boris Johnson coming out at the election in a few weeks' time and saying, actually, you know what, I'm really unsure about this campaign. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's not going to, it wouldn't happen, would it? Politicians and leaders have to appear to be confident and in control. But as I've said, we get nothing but honesty from David in the Psalms, and it doesn't matter whether good or bad, we get the whole story. And we chose this text as our starting block because when we've been studying different emotions as part of our, part of our series, honesty is always the common denominator. If you forget everything else that I say tonight, just hang on to that. God wants us to be honest with him. So I'd like to categorize, if I may, just, just two points that I want to go through really quickly as part of this message in the form of a statement and a question. And the statement is quite simply three words, God knows us. And the question that I want us to explore off the back of that is, do we know ourselves? Or to put it another way, are we honest with ourselves and what we're really like? So let's dive in. If we could get the text up behind me, that'd be helpful from verse 1. If you can cast your eyes, I don't know if you've got some of those wonderful little handouts that Shabs did in front of you. Cast your eyes over verses 1 to 14, and we'll just sort of scan through it very quickly. We see the following. Verses 2 and 3. We see that God knows us and knows what we do. He knows what, how we live our lives. He knows when we sit, when we rise, when we go out, when we lie down. He's familiar with our ways, he, or to put it another way, he knows our habits. Verse 4, he knows what we say and what we think. That's a bit of a scary thought, isn't it? Verse 7, perhaps more scary, he is inescapable. If you go up to the heavens, God is there. If you go down to the depths, God is there. And crucially, in verses 13 and 14, God has the right to do all of this because he is our creator. And not only that, he did his job very, very well. Let's read that verse quickly. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know this full well. It's a famous verse in it, you see in nice pretty hearts and flowers on, on Instagram sometimes. You know, rightly so, it's, it's a great verse to, to hang on to. But what's the implication for us? Well, one thing that was immediately apparent to me as I started looking at it is that it doesn't matter if you've got a physical defect or a disability or you don't like your nose or you think you're too fat or you're too thin, it doesn't matter. If God in his infinite wisdom and creativity has decided to create you into a sentient human being, there is a beauty and a uniqueness to you that is not present anywhere else in creation. Cast your minds back to Genesis 1. God creates everything, the earth, the stars, the planets, the animals, the land. And what is the crescendo of God's creation? It is you and me, human beings. Can you believe that? And as such, he has a vested interest in us. I don't know if you've heard the expression before, but when God was creating the world, he didn't create an ornament to just sit on the mantel shelf and for him to have no further part and just to be admired and to exist on its own. And he's actively working and actively interested in how his creation functions and in how we live our lives. I'm sorry to say it's not just the nice bits. We're going to flesh this out a little bit more later, but... Take a look again at verse 2. He perceives our thoughts. In verse 4, he knows our words before we speak them. 
And some of you might think that some of the things that you've said in secret, you might not like the idea of God having a look at your private life. Maybe you'd argue it's an invasion of your privacy or a breach of your human rights. But nonetheless, there are plenty of places in Scripture where this same idea is kind of expanded upon slightly. Jesus tells us in Luke's Gospel that what is done in the dark will be brought to light. And God also says to the prophet Samuel that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And further back in Psalm 51, David again tells us that God desires truth in my inmost being. I guess it wouldn't be a Christchurch sermon if I didn't give a Lord of the Rings illustration. I know Paul likes a good Lord of the Rings illustration. I do as well. Great, great book. Um, And there's a part in the first film which kind of sticks in my mind when I was thinking about this. If if you don't know the plot of Lord of the Rings, then I haven't got to spare nine hours, so you're just going to have to humor me. Um, There's essentially Dark Lord, Sauron, he's returned. He's threatening to take over the world. He's chasing the Master Ring, which is going to give him control of the world. And Gandalf, the good wizard, he's panicking about this, so he goes to see his his master, Saruman, and they have this epic conversation um, in the Tower of Orthanc, and and slowly Gandalf begins to realize that his master, Saruman, has betrayed him, and he's allied himself with the Dark Lord. And Saruman's justification for doing this is that he believes that Sauron cannot be resisted. It's futile to run from him, and he, he uses a quote which kind of sticks in my mind. He says, Behind his fortress of Baradur, the Lord of Mordor sees all. His gaze pierces cloud, shadow, earth, and flesh. And it put me in mind of this text. I know it sounds a bit brutal. It may seem like strong words, but I think it's an accurate way to think about how God sees us. We cannot escape his gaze, verse 7 tells us. And when we contemplate it, it should make us sit up and think. However, and there's a pretty big however, you'll be pleased to know, Rather than looking at us with the intention to bring harm, God uses his knowledge of us in a way that is fundamentally born out of love and compassion. If I could draw your attention quickly to verses 5 and 6. God says, You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me and too lofty for me to attain. So let's put this in context quickly with what we've already been looking at. Verses 1 to 4. He knows our sitting down, our getting up, our words, our thoughts. In other words, he knows all the grisly stuff about us. And he's still willing to hem me in behind and before and lay his hand upon me. In other words, he's out to protect us and to look after us. My study notes on this verse said that it's intended to be a gentle gesture which is supposed to provide us with reassurance. Or you could skip forward to verse 10 which says, Your hand will guide me. And hold me fast. He knows all this stuff about us. Everything we've ever done. Everything we've ever thought. Just think for one second. If I could pull off everything you've ever thought about somebody. And stick it on that screen for everybody to see. We'd run out of this building, wouldn't we? And God knows. That's the way that God knows us. And he says, I know what you're feeling. I know what you're going through. And as an incarnate human being, I've even experienced what you're going through. And much, much worse. The Bible tells us, doesn't it, he was tempted in every way just as we are. So he says, come to me precisely because I know you. Understand who God is and who you are in the light of what he has done. And hopefully we can learn to process our emotions in the right way. 
Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So I guess that all sounds kind of wonderful and encouraging, and rightly so. God wants us to be honest with him. He'll look after us. That's great. All that sounds like fabulous stuff. But the question is, as I mentioned before, point number two, are we honest with ourselves? Or perhaps more concisely, are we willing to accept our true selves and what we can be like? And when I've sat down and thought about this issue, it's dawned on me more and more as I look at my own heart. God knows me intimately, but am I honest with myself? And as human beings, we, be, we can become very adept at cultivating an image of ourselves, which tries to sweep under the carpet all the bad stuff that we don't want exposing. And the better we get at this, the further apart the real and the public perceptions of us become. You know, you'd like to think in church, wouldn't you, that you know, we're all honest with each other, we're all honest with ourselves, but you know, sadly we know that this isn't the case. I don't know about you, but I've, I've certainly done this. You know, you'll be having a horrible, raging argument walking to church with your spouse or your brother or your sister or your child. The second you cross that threshold, ding, you put on a nice big Sunday smile and everything goes away and everything becomes all right. Right up until the point you leave church, I don't know if you've ever done this, and you just carry on the same argument. It's like someone's just hit pause for an hour and a half. Um, you know, we can be so stubborn, can't we? as human beings, and how often we can keep the truth hidden. And what's under the surface can often be fatal if we let it fester and if we refuse to be honest with ourselves. I've, I've decided to use an iceberg for this illustration. I don't know why, because I've never seen an iceberg, but I've read about them. And if you have seen an iceberg, I'm guessing you'll know that you get the, the nice bit that comes out the top of the water that looks all pretty, but then underneath the water, you've got 90% more ice that's going to kill you if your boat crashes into it. I've seen Titanic, I know that to be true. Um, and often we know that there's things happening in our lives that we need to address, and feelings and emotions bubbling up. Or there's things we know that we need to confess and that we need to deal with. And God says to us, you know I know you, and I know that you need to come to me and deal with this issue or this particular emotion, but we don't do it, do we? or at least not as often as we should. We get very adept at using different techniques to avoid what we know we need to do. Sometimes we minimize, don't we? You ever done that? And I say, it's not that much of a big deal. You know, there's the ozone layer's melting, there's famine in Africa, you know. What's why I'm going through doesn't really matter, it's not that important. Or we tell ourselves we've got more important things on. And we blame the pressures of life. You know, we say, well, I've got a mortgage to pay, or I've got kids to try and keep alive, I've got a boss to try and keep happy. You know, some of the more deeper recesses of my heart are just going to have to take a back seat for now. Or sometimes we compare ourselves to others, don't we? You ever, you ever done that? I know I certainly have. You know, we say, I'm, I might have this problem, but I'm not like him. You know, I might be like this, but I'm not that. And nonsense, isn't it? All techniques I've successfully used myself. And in the backs of our minds, we know what we need to do, don't we? Even if we haven't got any particular besetting sin or fault that we can think of, we can still be guilty of simply neglecting to speak to God and talk to him about what is going on in our lives. You know, my parents live on the other side of the country, and I'm continuously reminded that I don't ring them enough. Now, I'm rubbish at keeping in contact with people. Most of you that know me will know that's true. Um, 
And if that's the case, how much more do I need to consult my Heavenly Father through the busyness of life? And very poignantly, David has chosen this particular moment to go to God in an absolute anxious rage. And I don't know about you, but generally speaking, that's, that's not the way around that I like to do it. If I'm going to get into an anxious rage, I tend to get it out with harsh words and raised voices, and it usually takes me a good couple of days to realize that I should have taken it to God in the first instance, which is exactly what David does here. If we can skip forward to verses 21 and 22. He goes to God in the height of his anger. Now, I just want us to consider quickly some of the things that David's had to put up with in his life. Might help us put it in, into context a little bit. Take a whistle-stop tour of David's life. We know he fought Goliath, took immense bravery. Most of the part of his young life, he was hunted by King Saul. King Saul took umbrage with the fact that David was God's anointed, so he tried to basically murder him at every opportunity. Um, there's an episode in 1 Samuel chapter 19 where Saul's men come to kill David and David literally has to dive out the window and David's wife has to put a statue in his bed and cover it with goat hair to deceive some presumably pretty dim-witted guards. Um, so he's basically he's chased all the way through 1 Samuel, he's fearing for his life and when Saul is finally defeated and David becomes king, things get even worse. David has a lot of children over the course of his life, and they were all nuts, as far as I can tell. Um, his son Absalom, there's an episode where his son Absalom kills his other son, Amnon, because he has decided to rape his other daughter, Tamar. And eventually then Absalom decides to go to war with David himself and try and kill his own father. It's, it reads like an episode of Game of Thrones. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, David barely knows a moment in his adult life where he wasn't at war with somebody or in fear for his life. And no doubt, if you scan, scan over this text, it's, it's pretty apparent that he's probably going through one of these experiences right here. Let's read verses 19 to 22. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. This is one angry fella. Now, this is somebody, to me at least, it sounds like he's at the end of his tether. People are fighting against God, and by extension, they were fighting against him as the Lord's anointed, and he has had enough. But there's something crucial that David does here to put his emotions in context. If we could skip forward to verse 24. David says, See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He pleads with God to root out any sinfulness that may arise within him as he's dealing with these horrible, bloodthirsty people who are after him. And I find this verse sort of fascinating to some extent because how often do we say to God, reveal to me if I've done anything wrong and find me out. Now, if my anger is misplaced or I'm out of line in any way, please tell me. Now, generally speaking, if, as human beings, if we've done something wrong, we don't want to be found out, do we? You know, I'm reading this thinking, Lord, if there's any offensive way in me, I'd, I'd probably rather not know about it, to be honest. Or at least if you do find an offensive way in me, give me a chance to give my side of the story and I'll give you some wonderful excuses and basically I'll try and make out that what I've done isn't that much of a big deal after all. So good at human beings at making excuses, aren't we? 
Any parents in the room will know that that is definitely the truth. My daughter, she's three years old. She, she already loves to tell me confidently that whenever I accuse her of anything, it's not my fault, Daddy. And this, is, this is a three-year-old girl, right? Often we learn this trait in childhood, don't we? We have to try and preserve our own innocence and paint ourselves in a good light. I've got to be careful with this next illustration, but I do think it's relevant. Bear with me. Holly crashed my car the other day. <laughs> um, and I was in it, and I was in the passenger seat. And if you know where we live, we live on a really narrow terrace street. And there's cars parked on either side. And to get up our street successfully, you have to creep up it at like half a mile an hour. And for reasons only known to Holly, this particular evening, she decided to ascend her way up our street at what felt like three and a half times the speed of sound. <laughs> um, and I'm sat in the passenger seat, and I can see this wing mirror coming towards me. And, you know, it's like delayed shock reaction. I'm going, no, 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 no. And sure enough, bang, take it straight out. <laughs> so me being a lovely, wonderful, loving husband has decided to completely lay into her and said, what, what on earth do you think you're doing? Look what you've done to the car. Um, what I found interesting about her response is that she kind of went, well, you shouted at me, and that made me turn the wheel into the car. But I says, Holly, but I didn't start shouting at you until you'd crashed the car. Um, but what I found, I'm not picking on Holly, I promise. What I found interesting about this response, and I'm not just singling Holly out, is that you know, other people, including myself, when we've got our backs to the wall, and someone has us bang to rights, often we can just panic, can't we, in the heat of the moment, and we can say daft things to try and cover up what we've done. I'll give you a second illustration just to prove I'm not being biased. Um, so when, when I was a kid, I was playing with my mate Rob in his mother's shed, and we were having like a fight with, I, I think I had a rake, and he had a hoe, and we were having like some, we were recreating like an episode of Star Wars or something, and as is often the case, I turn around and I've completely wiped out this lovely, beautiful, ornate plant pot that his mother had on the, uh, on the shelf in the shed. And rightly so, he's kind of gone to me, Joe, what on earth do you think you're doing? And it was a really weird experience, and I remember it to this day, because before my brain and even, had even had a chance to register what had happened or the consequences of what might occur, like my mouth just moved independently of my brain, and it just went, no, it didn't. <laughs> he's, he's like, I'm stood in front of you, Joe, I've watched you do it. And I, no, I didn't, can't prove anything. I think I might have thought that I could convince his mother that it was his fault instead of mine, and maybe she'd have believed me over him, I don't know. But I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, the sitcom Blackadder. Um, I love it, mate. It's, it's probably my favourite TV show of all time. And there's a, there's a bit in the fourth series, if you know the fourth series, it's set in World War I set amongst this backdrop of horrible pain and suffering. It satirizes it beautifully. And there's a moment where General Melchick, played by Stephen Fry, talking to one of his lieutenants, and he says, don't worry, George. If all else fails, a total pig-headed unwillingness to look facts in the face will see us through. And I find that it's often how I can see myself and how I can react in these type of situations. If all else fails, just flat out deny that we've done anything wrong or refuse to accept what we are. I'm not for a second saying that human beings are incapable of contrition or never accept blame for anything. But it is an undeniable facet of the human condition for us to do this. And I'm sure we can all think of occasions when we've done this before, but it is not what we get 
from David in verse 24. He says to God, if there's anything in me that shouldn't be there, help me to do something about it. Because he is astute enough to know that if you're not willing to humble yourself before God and see yourself for what you truly are, then how can God ever lead you in the way everlasting? You might be a celebrity, you might be an upstanding pastor, you might be a king like David, you might just be a normal upstanding member of society. Regardless of who we are, there is a face we all wear away from the eyes of the world. And we need to be honest with our emotions. We need God to search us and strip away our mask, as verse 1 tells us. God will not be drawn to those of us who are hell-bent on self-deception and self-preservation. And Jesus tells us plainly in the New Testament that it is not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. In other words, if you won't allow God to show you if there's some kind of offensive way in you, i.e. when you're sick, how can you ever be administered the cure? So to finish off then, to conclude, cast your minds back to what we said at the beginning. We are emotional creatures, and music and song is often the way that we like to express that. God knows this, and he knows us. And God himself, we sometimes neglect to think, is, is an emotional being himself. Think of some of the, the phrases that are used to describe God in Scripture. His love for us is described as unfailing. He's described as taking immense pleasure in the work of his son, Jesus. His anger is described as a consuming fire. He is jealous for our loyalty, and his heart is grieved by our sin. And ultimately, he displays his deep sacrificial love for us by sending his son, Jesus, to die on a cross to draw us to himself. We will never, ever understand the profound emotion that went into that decision. And if nothing else, it demonstrates God's immense love for us as human beings when we haven't merited a single thing in front of him. The Bible describes our sins as having separated us from God, but through the blood of Christ we have been reunited and a wonderful fatherly relationship has been established. And my plea tonight is that we would not waste that relationship coming towards Christmas time, aren't we? And what's, what's a word that we, we sort of unfurl at this particular time of year to describe Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. God has drawn near through the blood of Jesus. Psalm 139 is just a perfect picture of how close to us God is if we reach out to him. So go to him with your thoughts, your feelings, your sins, Confess, let it out, use music, meditate, whatever it may be. But be honest with yourself about what is truly in your heart. And also crucially and finally, please understand that the pervading emotion that will one day govern our lives in glory will be one of joy. Through what Christ has accomplished for us by dying on a cross to wash away the evil that we have done.